You're listening to the Chelsea Zerna Podcast, a podcast that inspires conscious leaders to live meaningful lives and to get in touch with the deepest parts of the human experience. My name's Chelsea Zerna, and I'm a women's empowerment coach with the mission of rewilding the feminine back into society. Each week, I have a conscious conversation with best-selling authors, inspiring leaders, and spiritual lightworkers who aren't afraid to step into the unknown and explore the greatest truths of life. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Chelsea Zona podcast. I'm here with Travis Fox. He is the founder and CEO, or dream architect, as he would say, of Architect of Being. He is a three-time published author, speaker, and Emmy award-winning producer. He's also an international performance and personal transformation teacher and a doctor of psychology and philosophy, which happen to be two of my favorite subjects. So I am extremely excited for this podcast. Travis is actually in Mexico right now. So uh, we may get a couple of glitches here and there, but he's, uh, he's in the process of writing a book. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, this is actually a month-long sabbatical working on my fourth book. My third one's being turned into an audio book right now. And- Talk about Mexico, just so we're clear, it's not like I'm in some major city. I'm literally out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> nowhere. <laughs> I love it. It's so awesome. Yeah, it's the best way to get creative, too, in total empty space with no distractions. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I'd love to dive into, um, so you, you went on a, quite a journey to get to creating Architect of Being, um, starting In your childhood, you had a really unique upbringing. You were born in Japan, spent your early childhood in Germany where you picked up golf. You wanted to be a professional golfer. You pursued that for a while. And then when you were in high school, your high school sweetheart got pregnant and gave up the baby for adoption without really consulting you on it. You really didn't have a lot of say in it. Um, And it made you question your golf career. I'd love to go into this a little bit. Um, and you, you ended up going on quite a journey, ended up getting your doctorate in psychology and philosophy later down the road. Um, but I'd love to hear about your, your early golf days and how you ended up, cause that's a really big shift going from professional sports into psychology and philosophy. Well, yeah. And, and for the clarity, I was actually born in Phoenix, Arizona, but it was whisked off at you know, days off to oh. Japan. And I spent the first four years of my life in, uh, in Japan. My mother was an, an actress model at, at the time. And back in those days, uh, which was in the uh, obviously early 70s, you know, having a kind of auburn hair, green eye, green eyed tall woman as a model was what really worked in Japan. So we went over there and then uh, and it had a lot of influence. Me. I love the Japanese culture. I clearly must have been Japanese in a previous life because I resonated <laughs> with that culture <laughs> instantaneously, even though I'm, you know, six foot two uh, Italian and, and I'm, um, you know, as the Japanese would say, I'm Gaijin. Um, but I love their culture. I love their people. I love their respect and I love the history of Japan. And so it's always been kind of inbred in me. And then uh, I came back for about a year. I uh, had a very interesting experience, which, uh, you know, is part of the next book I'll be writing, which is my fifth book, and that'll start in uh, mid-2020. Um, and then I uh, was off to Germany, and I spent three and a half years in Germany. So I was pretty multicultural, and I, by the time I came back at nine and a half, rolling ten, you know, things were very different to me. So, you know, what the hell's McDonald's? <laughs> McDonald's, I didn't, what the hell's a McDonald's? I grew up with sushi and sauerkraut. 
Mm-hmm. So it was very interesting culture shock to me when I came back to America. But when I came back, you know, I, I, my father, um, we had had that, that brief interim time um, uh, down in Florida between Japan and Germany, had put a golf club in my hand when I was five. And my dad was kind of this, you know, he was kind of this overall just good sportsman. He wasn't great at anything. He was just kind of good at everything. You know, he's a good, solid farm boy from Michigan who just, you know, was in every sport because that's what you did back in the day. Um, and then you went and did your chores, right? You know, the proverbial, I walked seven miles, you know, both ways to school, you know, uphill in a hurricane and a snowstorm kind of thing. You know, uh, he was an ex-fighter pilot. So he had this very kind of, you know, militaristic, you know, left brain approach where my mother was completely opposite of right brain approach, which yeah. put me somewhere by hemispheric in the middle. Um, and I was a product of an only, you know, I'm an only child. And, and uh, so that left me a lot of time to just kind of be Travis and figure out what Travis is doing. And golf allowed that. And it was also a way for my father and I to have some form of communication because uh, I was a blend, obviously. Yeah. And uh, I was natural at golf. By the time I was, you know, I was five, I was hitting the ball 80 yards and I can pop it pretty quick. And so I got into it pretty heavily. And it's a mental sport. Anybody who's played golf for 30 seconds long knows that you're not really playing against another person. Although we call that keeping, you know, score in golf. It's you. It's you in the golf course and you in the shot. It's you hitting each shot. So it became a very mental process. I became very good at it. By the time I was in high school, you know, I was captain of the team, you know, three-year, three-time MVP, multi-letterman, blah, 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 blah. Started playing on all the junior circuits. My life was planned out. Now, I don't know about anybody else on, on this uh, podcast or is listening. You know, maybe you, you maybe as a parent, you're planning it out for your kid, or you were the kid that your parent had your life planned out. Mine was all planned out. I was going to be on the PGA Tour. I was going to college. Uh, I was headed to Arizona State. Um, that was my thing. I had another offer to go to San Diego state. I chose Arizona cause I went to high school as a Sun Devil. So I thought it'd be really cool to go to college as a Sun Devil. That was my really big choice. Um, and somewhere along the line, the universe decided to step in. Now, as we'll talk later in this conversation, the universe is not a third party thing, but at the time I thought it was. And, um, I made a very interesting choice. I was committed to my career. I was committed to my sports. I dated uh, very young. I had a very early uh, sexual career. So dating and doing the holding hands, first base, second base thing through high school wasn't anything I was that interested in. So I was, you know, obviously doing other things outside of uh, school. So golf was my focus. But my senior year, I met this this young lady. And when I met her, um, there was something that just hit me on the inside. You know, we can call that, you know, love struck. You can call it uh, lust. I'm sure that was in there. Uh, you can call it whatever you want, but I was, I was captivated and I had to go explore it. And I fell in what I thought was my version of love. Now I've come to find out I was really projecting what I thought love was. And, um, you know, I was in love with myself, but I was projecting on her and we made an interesting choice and, um, we became pregnant my senior year of high school, which definitely was a, was a uh, showstopper at the moment. And we went through every exploration, which was interesting because we went through, you know, are we going to abort it? Are we going to adopt it? Are we going to keep it? Are we going to have our parents? So we went through every single option and I was supportive of the whole thing, or at least I thought I was, you know, from the level of maturity I thought I had at 17 of, well, let's do this together. She was an athlete as well, um, different sport and was obviously going to have a college career as well. So we both looked at that as, uh, as the way and the path. And the last thing I remember was, uh, right, right before uh, I started my, my freshman year of college, um, she had said to me, she looked me in the eye and she goes, I love you. And, uh, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. And I never saw her again. And she, her parents whisked her off and she did uh, a midnight run and, uh, they whisked her off. I know where she, I ended up finding out several years later, but didn't know where she went, never heard from her again and, um, was crushed. I had never experienced that kind of emotional trauma of abandonment of uh, breach of trust. 
of, hey, there, you know, I'm involved in this child's life. I'm actively wanting to be involved in this child's life. I'm, I'm not an absentee father. Um, and it was ripped from me. And it really sent me down a rabbit hole that I was ill prepared for. And so I look back at school and I look at education now, and hopefully you, know, you guys, yeah, this generation has a much more wider breach to information, but we didn't have it back then. So <clears throat> your, ob your opportunity, excuse me, was to go to therapy, some sort of Freudian or cognitive model, maybe a Jungian thing or do you know, some regressive. That didn't help my golf career. That's for damn sure. I can tell you that because I was standing, I could literally remember standing over a, a, a golf shot and thinking to myself, shit, I wonder where she is. You know, I wonder what she's doing. And then I would... I, become an, I became an emotional basket case. I mean, there was no way around it. I go one minute being like, wow, that was a great drive. I'm going to win this tournament to the next minute. I'm crying, walking down the fairway. And, you know, the guys look next to me. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you, dude? And I'm like, how do you explain it at 17 or 18? Hey, by the way, I've got a child out there somewhere in the world. I have no idea where he or she is. Um, <clears throat> and uh, my heart's broken. That's not the coolest thing you want to say when you're a freshman in college. In fact, more often than not, it uh, People look at you like you're just a total loon tune. And I started, I lost it. I, I lost it. I lost it mentally. I lost it emotionally. Um, that's an assumption that I ever had it. But at the time, I thought I had it. And uh, I started looking for answers. And I started looking for answers in the most obscure places. Uh, I looked everywhere outside of me. And along the way, when I was 19, I got invited to a beautiful seminar by a, a lady who ended up becoming very influential in my life, Dr. Barbara DeAngelis, um, who was a relationship therapist at the time. And she at least opened the door. And at that workshop, I met my mentor, who I sat under for 15 years. Wow. And he invited me to, because uh, my other, you know, and you said you know, about my doctorate in philosophy. Thank you. Yeah. But I also have a second doctorate in clinical hypnotherapy, because mm -hmm. I wanted to understand both conscious and subconscious modalities. Where's this part of me yeah. that keeps thinking this stuff? Where does this stuff come from? Because I would never think that which is the hilarious part because it's me thinking it, of course. Where the, where the hell does this stuff come from? Because I wouldn't think, you know, oh, Travis, you can't do it. Travis, nobody likes you. Travis, you're not good enough. Travis, you can't. You've got to be a perfectionist. Every shot's got to be perfect. you got to dress right. got to look. And I'm sure everybody on this call has had those thoughts come from somewhere. And if you're really doing any kind of work on your journey, you're going to ask yourself, where in the hell do these questions come from? Because that's not what I would think. And yet, there they are. And so I was committed to finding out what this was. And he sat me down and he said, hey, <clears throat> have you ever tried hypnotherapy? And like any other, you know, arrogant, cocky 19-year-old, I looked at him and said, what are you going to look deep into my eyes? You're going to swing a watch? You're going to snap your fingers and presto change? I'm going to bark like a dog or act like a chicken? <laughs> and I was just kind of this cocky little prick. And he, uh, he said, no, how about, why don't you just sit down for a second? I said, all right, fine. I got nothing to lose right now. I'm desperate. I need, to, I need to fix my golf game. My career, my life, my plan is basically just going out of hell in a handbasket. At this point, if you ask me to stand on one head and you'll hold aluminum foil and talk to aliens, I'm willing to give it a go. And I sat down and the most magical experience happened. Uh, I woke up an hour later and could not consciously remember what the hell had just happened. But what I did do is I felt this deep sense of connectivity, this deep sense of relaxation, and a real sense of, okay, the drama needs to stop for a second, and I know how to do that now, at least from a precursory level. And I, my life changed instantaneously. I knew this was wow. the path I needed to be on. I needed to understand how my mind worked at a constant What is this feeling that I felt? I didn't know what to call it at the time. We call it architect now for simplicity. I'll explain that later. And it sent me on a journey, and I immediately changed my life. I dropped golf. I also, in that process, realized that my entire journey for golf heretofore, you know, so almost so 20 years at that point, I'd really been playing for my father. 
I've been playing for a way to connect with my dad, to get my dad's approval, to get my dad. And ironically, it didn't matter how many tournaments I won. It didn't matter, you know, how great I was, whether I was a scratch golfer or a plus two. It didn't matter. My father always would come from this space of it wasn't good enough. And I realized that I would never, ever achieve my father's uh, approval. I would never achieve this, the, the sense of self-identity or the self-happiness continually asking for my father's approval and then using golf, which, by the way, is the, the, the dumbest game in the history of man because it asks you to do everything backwards. For example, in every other sport we play on the planet, it's the most wins. In golf, it's the reverse. It's the least amount wins. You know, you stand on the left side of the ball to hit it, but you're called a right-handed golfer. Everything is just, you know, bass backwards. And I started looking at all this and went, wait a minute, I'm approaching my life the exact same way. I put in a set of rule, I'm putting a set of rules on my life from what my father has put in my head, but yet my heart and my guts are telling me something completely different and I'm in this constant state of mental battle. And that's how my life changed right there. And then I've been on that course now for 30 years. As a matter of fact, next month I will turn, uh, I'll turn 49 if you can believe it. Totally, uh, you know, I look, wow. Even though I look, I look a solid 47. <laughs> <You> <laughs> <are>. <laughs> I've been on that path ever since and my, my you know, two doctorates later and uh, you know, I've done 14,000 hours on stage. My entire passion was about yeah. helping people wake themselves up and that's where I, mm. that's how I got into it. Yeah, that's amazing. So yeah, that's actually uh, a really common thing, I think, for people to live under the expectations of their parents. It's also, it's not a common thing to have that realization and then go back and change that and kind of live your life according to what you want and not what other people want. Some people do that their entire lives. When did you have the moment of, man, I need to stop living under their expectations or your father's expectations and gaining his approval and start going inward and doing what I want to do. Was it when you met that mentor? And then what about that realization? When did you have that realization that that's exactly what you were doing? Yeah, great question. Um, Doc was a fantastic teacher. Uh, and, you know, uh, everything I do is in some form or another an homage to, to him and the journey he invited me to take. Um, he's taken a great journey now, which you know, saddens me, but I'm grateful that he was in my life for the time that he was. Um, I will tell you the clinical answer was, oh, I changed my life at 19 and I knew my purpose instantaneously and I figured it all out. And that is so full of shit. Um, I will tell you honestly that I probably didn't really come even with, you know, and it's funny because, uh, uh, you know, I, I really shudder when people call me doctor now because I always ask them, I'm like, do you actually know the etymology of the word doctor? And, and even most doctors don't. And it's a, it's a drive from a Latin word that means teacher. And when I really realized that, I was around 30, and I realized I don't know that I was worthy of the title teacher, because who am I to teach anybody anything? Hell, I can barely tie my shoes. And just because I have, you know, these letters before and after my name now doesn't mean I know anything. It just means I know what they told me to learn based on the shoulders of other journey you know, men and women prior to me. And I, I think around 30, I came to the realization that, you know, the image of Dr. Fox was becoming a problem. Because I was, you know, I was supposed to have my shit together. I was supposed to be perfect. I, you know, I was, I was in my marriage. I had my kids and the dog and the houses and the buses. And I was touring. I was in radio shows and publicists and all this stuff. You know, on the inside, I was scared shitless because I was still trying to figure out if, you know, if my dad approved that I left golf. Because my dad was really pissed when I told him I left golf. I mean, he was like, whatever, whatever's on the other side of pissed is where my dad lived for a while. And then myself, too, because I was angry at myself. I went back and said, gee, you know. You know, you screwed this up. What if you hadn't gotten a relationship with her? What if you hadn't, you know, gotten pregnant? What if you just stuck to your guns? I mean, all this regret and the shame and this condemnation, this guilt and all this shit that I was just be a browbody myself on. So I compensated by creating the perfect life. 
you know, you know, Dr. Fox was perfect and he made lots of money and he had lots of fame. And, you know, he, this was really my path. See dad, I did it. I still did it. Dad, da, da, da. And around, around 30, I realized that, you know, doctor wasn't who I was and I dropped it and said, Hey guys, you know, let's relax. Um, doc was kind enough to say he need to finish this. And so I did. Um, uh, but I wouldn't tell you probably till around 40, believe it or not, was when I was in Bhutan of all places, I was yeah. in Tiger. If you've ever, uh, Anybody on your, your podcast knows uh, the country of Bhutan. It's an amazing place to visit. But there's a beautiful, iconic place there called Tiger's Nest. And it's about 9,000 feet up in the Himalayas. And I, I saw a picture of it when I was 39. I said, I have to go there. I had never heard of Bhutan before. didn't know what the hell of Bhutan was. And <laughs> okay. I, told me it, was, it was a form of top ramen. I would have believed you. Thought, All right, Bhutan. And um, I said, I have to go there. And a year later, I was there. And I, on my 40th birthday, the day I turned 40, I was at Tiger's Nest with, uh, with the head llama there. And uh, the most transformational experience happened to me. Um, the, uh, the head llama broke what they call tradition. And he had reached up to the, the, the deity statue, which has the white scarves that, you know, they're all, you're asking for blessings from that deity. He reached up and pulled one of them off, which is like unheard of. You know, you're not supposed to do that. And he pulled it off and gave it to me and blessed me. And then they cleared tiger's nests as they usually do for lunch uh, for one o'clock so the monks can eat. And they asked the visitors to leave. And he said, you stay. I said, who, me? He said, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, am I going to get lambasted here? Are they going to throw me off the cliff? Am I, <laughs> I mean, is the scarf really just a way that you guys are going to hang me? I mean, what, what the shit? What do I do? And um, he said, no, you stay. And he pointed up to there's a beautiful plateau that sits up there on tiger's nest if you ever go there. And it overlooks this gorgeous valley. He said, this is yours. Take your time. So I had this time to myself. And so I said, all right, well, if you're here, Travis, there's obviously a reason for it. Uh, you know, it's clearly beyond your scope. What would you do? And I said, why don't you just sit still and shut up for a second and just listen? And so there's an idea. And so I sat there for about a half hour and just closed my eyes. And this beautiful voice, no different than I'm hearing yours, came to me and said, are you ready? And I remember, I remember opening my eyes thinking someone had actually talked to me audibly. I thought I'd, there was someone around me. I was actually by myself. But I turned around and went, okay, I'm losing my mind here. I closed my eyes again and I said, I said, are you ready? Are you ready to walk the master's path? And before I could realize what I had actually said, I answered yes. Now, clearly that wasn't Travis answering. That was my spirit answering. And um, the most profound experience happened. I, I walked out of Tiger's Nest. I've never had a problem with my knees ever in any way, shape, or form after all the years of golf and uh, walking and running and doing all those you know, martial arts. And I walked out of Tiger's Nest and my third step, my right knee goes out. Like, can't move it. It, I thought I blew my ACL. Jeez. Now, mind you, Tiger's Nest is up at 9,000 feet. There's no elevator. There's no cars. There's oh, no, you, you got to hike down. And so it was uh, the most excruciating walk I've ever had in my life. And I, I know that they, they'd asked me if, hey, we can go get you a donkey. We can try to get you some I said, no, I'm, I'm walking off this damn mountain one way or another. I didn't know why. When yeah. I got out of the bottom, there's this beautiful emotional release where I realized I just let it all out because the, the amount of pain I was in, but the, the, the mental focus that it took to do that, the commitment was what later really set the path to your question. And the next day I run, I was at the hotel and I said, man, I'm going to have to go back to America. I think I blow my knee. This is really you know, tragic. Thought, wow. What am I going to do? And all I did is I saw, I sought to just bend my knees. I bend my knees and the loudest pop I've ever heard in my life went bow and my knee popped. And I was like, Oh crap. Now I broke my knee. Oh shit. <laughs> Uh, I really, and my knee magically popped back in. Now here's the weird Jeez. part. I have, I have summited Kilimanjaro. I've been to Machu Picchu, Cusco. I've been to Rainier. I've been to a bunch of other mountains since then. Never had a problem with many ever since. And 
I went back and I replayed that. And it was at that moment what, you know, what I believe, you know, we call architect, you call it God, spirit, you know, you know, Allah, Yahweh, whatever you choose to call that universal mind was really asking, are you ready to walk the master's path? Because the master's path has nothing to do with looking perfect, quite the opposite. It is about peeling all of that shit off. And so when I look back at it, that is when I finally realized that I, even as Dr. Fox, even as, you know, leading uh, as a shadow CEO and all of the business accomplishments I had done and, and helping people and the thousands of people I'd been in front of at the time and speaking on the circuit, blah, 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 I was still trying to get my dad's approval. Mm. And that was the apprentice's path. When the apprentice is still seeking that the master is the one that gives you the approval is how you know you're an apprentice. The master's path invitation that I received at Tiger's Nest was myself to myself. Are you ready to finally just approve of yourself and stop asking about dad and mm. let it, let it the frick go? Can you just let yeah. it go, man? And then that path started. And of course, here we are nine years later. And uh, it's been an amazing journey in those last nine years. The, the, the last nine years, I feel like I've lived an entire lifetime. Damn. Um, crazy. So that's. So to answer your question, um, I, I, it's taken me to 40. So hopefully this podcast and what you're the work you're doing will help people get there a little bit faster than I did. Oh, but, man. you know, it's going to do it in perfect time. Totally. Your story gave me chills. Oh, man, what a beautiful version of the hero's journey. That's beautiful. It's amazing. Gosh. Yeah, I I'm, still, I'm still trying to figure out who the hero is in my own story. <laughs> the best part. Oh, oh, I'm the hero. Oh, shit. I, I thought it was somebody. My bad. I thought I was the caddy. I didn't realize I was the player. Oh, shit. Oh, I'm out. <laughs> Wait a minute. Mm, um, don't we oh, all have points? Yeah. That's, yeah, that's such a good point too. And, you know, um, a lot of people have had this realization throughout their lives or have heard about it, made them ask and get curious. And Eckhart Tolle was, I think, one of the most popular people to separate uh, mind from ego, or excuse me, uh, your, your ego from your soul. And having this, this mental chatter in the back of your mind and separating that from your true essence of who you are. And you, you actually mentioned it a few times now. What was your journey into being able to separate those two voices and really get in touch with your deepest essence, not just this background noise and this chatter and this mental, uh, potentially degrading um, voice that, mm -hmm. that came in a lot? Yeah, and you know, and to credit to Eckhart, I, I know his work. I've never met Eckhart, but I know his work really well. But you know, I mean, I've I've, I've researched this all the way back to you know Socrates and Plato. I mean, we've been all been asking the question of who am I? Who am I without the story? Why are the stars there? And where do I come from? And at the core level, we're all asking from some form or another. But it's not from you know I need to figure life out. It's quite the opposite. It's you know what am I experiencing while I'm here? What we call vacation planet Earth because you're here on a vacation for you know call it 80, 90 years. And the whole damn thing's a vacation because it's pretty much a virtual playground when you figure that out. But the rest then becomes, for me, to answer your question, um, mine actually came on the birth of my third child. Um, I'm a three-time father and a one-time grandfather, which I guess that makes me a gilf, hopefully. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe I should start an app called, you know, Gilfs are up or something. You know, I don't know how to work out how that works. But uh, my third uh, child, uh, I have two boys and a girl. And my third child was a boy, and he uh, was born on the autistic spectrum. And that's when the dismantling of my identities of who Dr. Travis Fox was really began hardcore. Because all of my training, all of my schooling, all of my experiencing, all of my lectures, all the things that I quote unquote invented, done, and helped people, blah, 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 I found myself helpless. I had no idea what the hell autism was. When I went through school, autism was couched as mental retardation. It was in the, the learning disabled category. The autism was just kind of swept under the rug. And so 
here's the here's the great irony of the journey, which is it couldn't happen in I mean, a more beautiful way, was that here's the great Dr. Fox, the great communicator, the great teacher, blah, 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 and I can't connect with my own son. Mm. Heartbreak number two. My heart's now broken in a way I had never experienced. First, first child was taken away from me because clearly at the time I wasn't ready. I was too much of an egomaniac um, and immature, wasn't ready. And probably the best thing that happened because it snapped my path on more on a more appropriate way, a way woke me up from my own self-hypnosis. But the second awakening, as I call it, and we go through this in Architect, we call it the, you know, the three deaths. And it's about, about what Eckhart talks about. It's about, wait a minute, the death of my ego. And it doesn't mean that the voices go away but you become very, very crystal clear of what those voices are. And you start to identify them. And one of the easiest ways, and maybe your listeners can do this right now, is when you ask yourself when these thoughts come from, like, you know, why am I not good enough? Or how come I, you know, people don't like me? Or I don't, I don't feel thin enough? Or I don't feel like I'm a good enough parent? Or, you know, what, whatever. And we have all of them. There's, I mean, there's a billion of them. We all are good at really kicking our own butts. Um, ask yourself, just listen to the tone of the voice. More often than not, what you'll find is sometimes some of the voices are male tone and some are female tone. Now, that's a really interesting space. I happen to be male. You know, obviously, you decided to adjust this body as a female, but yet how do I have male and female voices? If I'm male, they should all be male. If I'm female, they should all be female. But then you go, well, that's my mom and my dad. Okay, well, if it's your mom and dad, it's not you. So you start to immediately separate from the, well, wait a minute. How come it has a tone? And I say tone meaning, you know, masculine or feminine. I don't mean, you know, dominant or submissive. I just mean the tone sequence. And then you start looking, well, wait a minute. If it has a tone... And I'm supposed to be this gender because I'm identifying by a gender. Where the hell is that coming from? And then you start looking that it's a tape. And then there's, you know, in architect, we have an entire series and system that you can actually dismantle it so you could see it. And then you come down to the truth. Now, I think that most people inherently, you know, Chelsea, you and I have had, you know, several conversations. But I think in, in the core of the truth, no one needs to tell you what the truth is. What you need to do is stop telling yourself what the truth isn't. And when you can get to that, get to that awareness where you're least willing to go, you know, I am so full of crap and not from a perspective of judgment, but going, I laugh at the absurdity of the stupid shit I do in the name of blank mm -hmm. approval, mother, father, church and state, um, success, non-success, you know, uh, what I'm supposed to look like, feel like, talk like, act like, cause you know, one of the great questions I ask people is like, how do you know it has to look the way you think it does? What gives you the vast experience of knowledge that you're a, you know more than what's going on in the universe. And I say you meaning the identity we call Travis or the identity we call Chelsea, right? Because that name, I mean, think about it from this perspective. You didn't get to choose your damn name, but you subscribed to it. You know, that was given to you. You were stamped on, boop, okay, we're going to call you Travis. Okay, we're, we're going to call me Travis. Okay, I'll be Travis, whatever. Right? Like, is Travis who you really are? Well, who are you without that name? When do you drop back all the way back down to the I am? And, you know, and when you start with the I am, and that's when you can distinguishly feel that voice versus here, mm. then you'll know you'll be able to separate the two. And that's really, for me, my autistic son, who's now 17 and getting ready to graduate high school this year and going to college, has his own, if I can be a shameless plug here, he has his own YouTube channel where he makes shows for other autistic kids on YouTube, and he does it because he loves it. I mean, as a matter of fact, I can tell you point blank, at the time of this recording, uh, the week following this recording, uh, I'm actually taking him to Sesame Street theme park where he's going to meet the Sesame Street characters. And he now sits on uh, kids to unofficial advisory board, which owns baby Einstein. Oh. And this kid has taken his autism and his love for shows and he edits them. He taught it himself. And he won't let me teach him anything. He's like, Nope, that I got it. I'm like, okay, it's your journey kid. And he is the one that has really taught me about how to connect on the inside because autistics, mm -hmm. if anybody on this call or this podcast, excuse me, um, 
has any degree of contact with an autistic, you will find out the authentic, the authentic truth. It should be called, because should be called autism. It should be called authentic because autisms don't jerk around. They'll tell you straight up how they feel. And what's really cool is they'll feel their feelings and let it go. But us normal people will hold shit for an entire lifetime because, well, damn it, we're the smartest person in the room. You know, they're autistic, but we're normal. I, I, I would offer you that autism is an evolution of how it could be if we were willing to get out of our own damn way. And so for me, that's how I started, you know, the dismantling of my identity as, as Dr. Fox and just saying, you know, Travis is good enough. You know, I'm good enough. I don't need the letters before and after my name, although I've earned them. And if people want to they recognize that that's great. That gives them some sense of credibility or authenticity, I guess. Mm. Or they can just feel it. Does this connect with you or not? Is what I'm saying hits you right in the guts? Are you willing to listen to it? And if you're not, own the fact that you're not willing to listen to it. And that's okay too. But just own that. You don't need the letters before and after my name. Because all PhD really means is either please her daily or please him daily. That's all it means. And that's just <laughs> talking about pleasing the voices in your head. Mm. Right? I'm, I'm trying to please the voice in my head. And that's where the dismantlement came from. And that's when I went, wait a minute, what is, what is this? I mean, the doctorate's great and it sounds really cool and it gets you cool reservations and people treat you really different because they think you're some expert. I'm like, I'm an expert at nothing. I ask really good questions. I have a really good system because I'm on my own damn journey. Just because yeah. I created the system and you know, I've got, I'm very blessed. I've got thousands of students around the world who are all graduate doing architecting on their own now. But make no mistake, I'm down here right now in Mexico on my own sabbatical because I'm doing my own work for the next book, right? Because you have to walk your talk, at least I believe you do. And so... Our, our entire philosophy is, I don't have a damn answer for you. But I got really good, good questions that will allow you to arrive at your own truth on a step-by-step -step of understanding clinically, applicational, and experientially what's going on, soup the nuts, from the top of your head and how you see the world to how it feels and guts. And that's how you start to learn to separate. And I know Eckhart does great work. I'm a super fan of his. Um, he and I are very you know, kindred souls. So is Ram Das. So is even Maharaji way back from the 1800s. And so I think... In the, in the essence of sounding, you know, humble, although I don't really know what that means anymore, but in the essence of, you know, I'm just a messenger of my time for the, for the people that are on that path of how do I do this? Because I'm a how-to guy, you know, like you and I discussed. I, I do value systems, but I value the micro and the macro. I think the system is important, but you also have to be able to jump into the, the spiritual, the essence of who you are. Otherwise, you, you can stay lost in the labyrinth of your mind for an entire lifetime and still come nowhere. Right? Yeah. And that's not the journey. The journey is to understand how the mind works, at least at the precursory levels that we believe we understand at this time in humanity. And then ultimately come back to your truth. Mm. And when you step back and you can start identifying just the tones of the voice, my friends, you're on the path already. Totally. And those tones of the voice, you even kind of mentioned it earlier, could even reflect the voices of your mom and your dad and how they talk to you and learning those voices and how you talk to yourself can be a reflection of their voices. Well, I'm asking myself this question. I mean, I, you know, I, it's funny. I ask, my, and I ask myself this question a lot, but I ask all my students and I ask anybody when someone asks me, hey, Travis, you know, what's the first step of architecture? And I'm like, okay, so listen to the voices in your head. Most of them are probably negative in some form or another. You're kicking your own butt or you're, or you're what's called false cheerleading. Doggone it, you're great, Travis. Doggone it, people like you. And they made a character of it on Saturday Night Live many, many years ago, right? Doggone it, people like you. Oh, bullshit. That's you trying to, you know, cover up something more often than not because you're cheerleading yourself. Ask yourself this question. If any of your friends talk to you the way you talk to you in your head, how many friends would you actually have? I can tell you point blank, I'd have zero friends because I'd be like, up yours, you're an asshole, right? But I'm the asshole. That's the best part, right? And I tell people, I go, just start there. If, you're, if your voices in your head are so um, condemning and so negative and so pushing you into a corner, 
you're clearly in your head and it's really a time that you step back and ask yourself, if you only had 30 days left to live, would you be doing any of the stuff you're doing right in your life? And if any part of your answer is no, I wouldn't change right now, now, because the only person you're screwing over is yourself. Mm-hmm. For sure. Absolutely. And getting out of the mind and back into your essence, back into your being, uh, is it somewhat of a spiritual process? What has your relationship been to spirituality? And have you always been really spiritual? Did you grow up religious? Did you always have this uh, connection or did they come over time after you had a lot of these realizations? Um, I think everything's spiritual. I think anybody who says that it's not spiritual is a person who is really good at BSing themselves. I know I used to be a master at it. That part of my job was to be, you know, it's not spiritual. It's all in psychology of the mind. Bullshit. There's a great saying, old Japanese saying that uh, comes from the samurai era. If I, you know, if I pull out my sword and I lop off your head, problem solved, but you still exist. How is that possible? So then you come to the realization you are not who you think you are. You are not your spacesuit, commonly called your body or your mind. That is how your spirit ingested itself. And if you even look at the Buddhist traditions, the Buddhists say that it, you know, it takes 42 days for a soul post its death, leaving the body to re-ingest and reincarnate. Ironically, modern science has now said, well, that's interesting because on the 42nd day of a pregnancy of a child inside the woman's body is the first time you can identify the sex and you can see the pineal gland of the embryo. Huh. Oh, shit. Maybe there's something going on there, fam. I mean, we should take a look at that. So, you know, I, I come from this place of everything is spiritual because you're a spiritual being, however you define that, and I'll answer a question more specific on my journey, having a human experience, hence vacation planet Earth. The whole damn thing is a big-ass vacation. It's not your two weeks in the weekend you're working for, baby. It's the whole damn thing. This is a big-ass playground. That's why this little blue marble is in the middle of freaking nowhere. It's kind of like going to Mexico in the middle of nowhere. You're on a freaking vacation. When are you going to wake the F up and start enjoying this shit? Because it goes by fast. I mean, like, bang. And so for me, I was originally, um, being Italian, I was, uh, quote, unquote, baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. But I grew up in Japan, so that's really interesting. So I was immediately clashed into religion between what a Catholic uh, ideology was and, of course, what is a Buddhist philosophy. Um, I tried Christianity when I was 17, and then, uh, Shundai, Shundai, I took out my bow tie. I did the, the, you know, the, the whole, you know, uh, you know, charismatic movement. I thought that was really cool, but it was really fun. I enjoyed, you know, the dancing around and all that stuff. But I was like, okay, so now that I'm done dancing and go eat, you know, at some Denny's or IHOP afterwards, what the hell does that actually have to do with my journey? Um, I looked at all of them. And for me, I realized that religion has its place from a certain point of view, but I'm not a religious man. I've studied almost all of them in, in pretty good depth. Will I tell you I'm an expert at all of them? Nah, that's not possible. But I've taken a real hard deep dive at all of them. And I respect every one of them. I do. I have friends that are everywhere from Islamic to, to Jewish, to Christian, to universal mind, to Krishna, to Taoists, to Hindu. Um, I, I respect them all. But for me personally, my own personal journey is I believe those are part of a religious uh, programming that ultimately can lead you to the question. And all questions are the same, you know, they all, somewhere or another. Who am I without the story? And who am I? And I am always ends up in every single one of them. That is the common thread. And so for me, I always ask the same religious question, and it's always the same. Okay. Can we agree on that nobody gets out of this life alive? Yeah. If you, yeah. Okay. So we, we, we're all part of that religion. Boom. We're done. Every, how you choose to arrive at that awareness that the life, the life you're living, quote, unquote, at least in this ingestion, if that's you know, how you choose to, to look at it, 
is going to terminate. And here's the bitch of it all. Not one single religion and not one single spiritual journey will tell you when, which is what forces the being present is all about. Yeah. And present of being present, meaning the gift of it, is that you get to experience it all if you choose to, or you can choose to put yourself asleep. There's no right or wrong. There's no, gee, you get a gold star and a, a medal. Hey, guess what, Travis? You made it to 95 and you did all this and you get a special, you don't get a special place. Shut the hell up. You're the exact same you were as you came in and you're the exact same as you go out. How you chose to vacation while you're on planet Earth? Well, damn it, that's your blueprint. The question mm -hmm. is, are you riding somebody else's blueprint? Are you willing to ride your own, even if it doesn't look like you think it should? Mm, yeah, for sure. And you know, that fear of death can actually be a, a strong motivator for people and for being present. How has that motivated you? Are you motivated by that at all? Like, what's your... Oh, I'm, I'm a chicken shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, are you kidding? The hell no. <laughs> I am committed to figure out how to beat death. I'm, I think about it all the time. Like, okay, maybe, maybe if I cryo-freeze myself or I ingest my conscience. I mean, my autistic son's hilarious. He came to me, true story, he came to me earlier this year and he goes, hey, dad. I said, yeah, buddy. He said, you have to live till the year 2050. I said, well, let me do the math on that real quick. I said, all right, well, I'll be somewhere around 80, which didn't sound good at all to my ego, but I was like, all right, well, 80. I guess I'll be the wise guy. Hey, I go, why do I need to live to 2050, son? He goes, well, dad, if you get to 2050, they'll be able to replace every human body part in the body and you'll live forever. And I want you to live forever. I was, I started bawling. I was like, oh my God, buddy, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. I said, tell you what, buddy, I promise you, if it's in my power, daddy's going to live till he's 2050. And we're going to figure this out together. So to answer your question, yeah, death was a super strong motivator for me. I had a strong awareness because I was an only child. You know, I was a product of divorce by the time I was nine. And uh, one of the defining moments where I realized that I was, quote unquote, alone, and it wasn't done with you know, malicious intent, but I started to realize that I had to take care of myself, even though I had no idea what the hell I was doing, was that, you know, when my parents sat me down at nine, and I'll never forget the day, it was in Sacramento, California, and they said, hey, your mom and dad aren't going to be together anymore, you get to decide who you're going to go live with. And at that moment, my emotional childhood ended, boom, done. I went, holy shit. And so I started looking at things from a survival perspective. How do I survive? Which one of my parents is going to, you know, be able to take care of me? Which one is the one that I'm going to feel most safe with? Which is, you know, what am I willing to compromise on in order for my safety? And so the choices that I made took me a long time to unwind because at that time at nine, uh, it was mostly mature as I thought I was because I was nine and I was playing golf and I was all that and I was modeling back then and I was, you know, playing sports and I just thought I was the cat's meow. I realized I was nine. You know, I was nine. There's a little boy in there went, I have absolutely no idea what the hell the right decision is. And I went off pure just gut reaction of survival mode, which set a tone, which, by the way, was part of the impetus for why my golf career unraveled, because I was playing golf to survive. I wasn't playing golf mm. to win. I was playing golf to survive. And while I was good at it, I, even though I would go for shots, I would always have that, that subtle fear in the back of my head. That subtle fear then relates to that fear of death that you're talking about. I would always totally. come back. I don't want this shit to end. I, I just figured out that Travis is kind of okay. Shit, I just woke up at 49. I mean, I, I just played the first nine. I'm, I'm just getting ready to go play the back nine here, turning 50 next year. I want another 50 years of this shit. How do I figure that out? So is fear of death um, a great motivator? I think it is. In fact, in fact I, for a while there, it, you know, to no, no disrespect to all my life coaches out there, I went out the other way and said, oh, I'm a death coach. I help people face the fact that you're freaking dead. And it's until you wake up to you are going to die at any given moment, you're not really living. So let's figure out death first. Let's face that thin memory of fear that kind of envelops everything that we do, think, and act as a motivator. 
and use it to wake ourselves up, to, to invite ourselves to do stuff that jump into our life, that scares the crap out of us, the things that we never thought we'd do. Because again, until we really face the fact that we're already dead, you know, you're not really, really living. Are you doing things? Yeah, of course. Are you buying shit? Yeah, of course you are. Are you making babies, having sex, running around, seeing things and experiencing shit? Yeah, but are you really living, you know, as I say, balls out, balls to bones, like you had no tomorrow? And there's that great song that said, um, I think it was by Nickelback that said, you know, um, if today was your last day, you know, and there's been a bunch of songs about that. And that goes back to that question I asked people, if you only had 30 days left to live, would you be doing anything you're doing right now? And if your answer is no, and you, you then justify, time to look at those tones again, because those voices are probably coming from mother, father, church, and state, and you've got some unwinding to do and get out of your head and dive into your heart. Because mm -hmm. again, I'm not talking, and I love that when I say that, and I'm sure you get this too. People yeah. go, well, Travis, when you say get in your heart, man, you, you sounds like you're just talking about utopia. You're just like, oh man, kumbaya. I'm like, that's not what I'm saying, man. I'm saying quite the opposite. Your heart is full of all kinds of emotions. Totally. So it's not just it's, uh, this, this whole thing of that love is supposed to be, you know, just this thing that we read in a book. I read Corinthians. I know what it says from the Christian perspective. I know what it says from the Islamic perspective. I read Rumi. I understand what they all say, but love has many shades. It has anger. It has shame. It has guilt. It has joy. It has bliss. How come you're not willing to experience them all? And that's mm. the question you start asking yourself. Shit, I'm so busy just trying to be perfect or to try to be happier, try to be good. Everything's okay. I don't want to tell anybody I'm really happy because if they find I'm happy, they might steal it. Well, how the hell do they do that? The only person who can steal it is you. You're the yeah. thief in the night. And so I think when you, you know, come to that awareness, uh, for me, religion was a great stepstone because I got to look at them and it forced me to ask some really nasty questions, right? Who am I yeah. without the story? What happens if I died today? Mm -hmm. Have I lived the life I really wanted to live? Am I willing to listen to those voices that go, you know, I always thought it would be cool to have road to hotels and room service. That was my goal. I wanted to just live in hotels and room service because <laughs> as a kid, I grew up cooking. I hate cooking. I'm, go I'm good at it. I had, great, I had great teachers. I mean, Italians are great cooks, you know, so are the French. Really they totally just, are. I, yeah, I, I had great teachers. I just was cooking for myself and I hated it because I also had dishes too and I just hated the dishes just as much. I still do to this day. It's not my favorite thing. I'm good at it. I just don't like it. So my whole, my whole impression was, well, why couldn't you just go live in a hotel all over the world? Why do you have to own a bunch of shit? You don't own it anyways. You're indebted to the mortgage. Why don't you just go, hey, take that mortgage you're paying $1,000 a month or $2,000, $3,000, whatever your mortgage is. And why not just go rent the shit out of and experience your life? Because at the end of the day, that's it. And then enjoy it. Enjoy that, that cheesecake you don't, you don't have to make or that, you know, that steak or whatever it is you're doing. And go experience that around the world. And that's, that's how I set about. And I've been you know, self-employed you know, since I was 19. I haven't worked for anybody else. Still don't work for anybody else. Don't know how to work for anybody else because I work for the toughest boss in history, me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Have you ever been 100% nomadic where you actually didn't have a home at all and you just kept moving? Um, no, I'm quasi-nomadic. I'm a hypocrite to the bone. Yeah. Um, I always have a base mm -hmm. that I'm based out of. My base yeah. is out of Vegas, um, as many people know now. Uh, one, because it's a good state for taxes, but two, you know, and I traveled my, and I, you know, I've traveled around the world just about three times now and I continue to do it. Um, I found that I could get anybody to come to Las Vegas, strangely. But when I lived mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, not so much. Uh, oh, so really? I like, well, yeah, I would always ask the same question. I'd say, hey, you know, have you ever gone to America? They'd say no. I'd say, hey, um, just curious, you know, if you went to visit America and, you know, um, my partner and I, we'd always ask and, and she'd ask the question as well. And they always said the same thing. It was San Francisco, New York, Las Vegas. Well, I lived in, you know, those two and I, you know, they're too damn cold for me. And I said, well, I hadn't done Las Vegas. Let's give it a go. So I took that <laughs> as a message from, you know, the universe, God, spirit, whatever, you know, architect, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And 
you know, moved the entire operation, all the companies in Las Vegas. It's been a, and it's been a great ride. I thoroughly enjoy it. It's a great community in Las Vegas when you take it and strip it back from, you know, just being about the strip. And then the rest of the time, to your question nomadically, you know, I spend my time now where I'll, I'll take off for two or three weeks and go somewhere. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we do it together. Sometimes we do it separately because, uh, you know, my partner's a, an author and a speaker on her own, an ex-student of mine, ironically, but now on her own doing her own thing and, and speaking in from the women's group and doing what she does. And, um, and I'm, I'm so blessed because the, the, the work that I do, um, you know, we've got about, uh, I don't know, well, one particular division. We've got over 3,000 people in that division now, and they're all over the world. So wherever I go, I can always have someone to sit and jam with. Uh, and so my goal is, is I go back to base. I hang out there for about a month, give or take, do all the duties I need to do as a CEO. And then I take off again, about mm. like I'm doing right now. And yeah. And sometimes together, sometimes apart. So I'm quasi-nomadic. Mm. Yeah. I, know our mutual, I know our mutual friend that introduced us is fully nomadic. And you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I go, God dang it. You know, it sounds really cool on paper. I got to be honest with you. I tried it. That backpack thing's a bitch. I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. I got the big backpack too, and it still didn't help. I don't know, bro. I'm not, it just doesn't quite align yet. I'm not that. You're, you're, you're diplomatic. He is I'm exceptional. I'm happy, You know, that's what For I would sure. say. For <laughs> sure. Yeah. And you talk about getting out of your head, into your heart space, really feeling your emotions, living the deepest part of the human experience. Sometimes that involves pain. And a lot of people avoid pain like crazy. Pain can also be an incredible teacher, but it can be something that can be very scary. So how is, what is your relationship to pain? How have you used pain to help you kind of propel through life? Um, and how has that helped you with authenticity? Because we also hide behind these masks that are also curated from the mind. And getting into your heart center and allowing yourself to feel these emotions helps remove the mask and relate to people deeper, be actually more um, present with people. Yeah, good question. I think pain and pleasure are, are um, opposite ends of the same sort, right? Uh, as I said a moment ago, love has many faces. I think pain is one of them. Because if you weren't in pain, it means you didn't, you had some sort of connectivity to it, some sort of loving emotion to it, some sort of attachment, some sort of want, desire, whatever. Uh, I find pain, I find pain to be both, uh, I know this will sound really dichotomous, but I find pain to be sometimes pleasurable because I'm really good at kicking my own ass. And, you know, I would ask your, your listeners right now, you know, just because you project that you're not in pain, how often are you really in pain on the inside? Which means you still really are in pain and you do everything to avoid pain. You're still walking around carrying pain, which means you're in freaking pain. So now you're double pain, but you're projecting pleasure, which means you're just full of shit everywhere you go. At what point are we willing to look at and go, damn, this sucks. Um, I wish I could just look at the pain. Well, you don't need to look at it. Feel it. The problem is we're so busy worried about feeling pain. I mean, one of the most things we talk about in, like, in relationship structure, people say, well, I don't want to get in a relationship because I might get hurt. BS, you're already hurt. You're walking into the relationship hurt. And then you're going to bring that up because you're doing so many things to ask the other person under a false expectation of, hey, Chelsea, we're getting together. You know, I don't want to get hurt. I just want to be in a good, loving relationship because I've been hurt before. So here's what you need to do, honey, to make sure you don't hurt me. Because if you don't, I'm going to rip your head off under these expectations because you surely can't live up to all my expectations because, well, how dare you supposed to know my entire story? And when you don't know my story, well, you don't know me. And then you try all this bullshit and we go through these series of relationships of false projectionism under the ideology of we don't want to get hurt. But we're walking around hurt. Stop. Stop walking around hurt all the time and then look and dive into it. It can be scary. 
But what's scarier, walking around and being full of pretense and illusion and expecting everyone else to make you feel better and keep getting let down so you become more and more hurt and do this big, beautiful snowball of bullshit and miss your entire life? I mean, what's the point of going through and creating this lifestyle of bling, bling and rich and da-da-da? I've had money, lost money, had money, lost money, had money, lost money, had money. I've had them both. I mean, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur to the bone, right? And so I've discovered for myself, you know, you can do all those material things and we put those expectations on people, but the bottom line is you're still walking around hurt. You are a wounded puppy, right? And that doesn't make you bad. It doesn't make you less than. It makes an invitation of your soul to say, are you ready to wake up? And not from a, not from a perspective that you don't know something, but quite the opposite. You keep denying that you don't know something. That's the illusion right there. Oh, I didn't know I was hurt. Really? Really, you didn't know you were hurt. You mean if I put you in a room, take all the distraction away from you and say, I'll see you in an hour, how many of you would go batshit crazy? <laughs> the answer is about 95% of us, right? And that, that's because here's the thing we don't want to look at. Our number one relationship of all time is us. We are married to ourselves. And yet we do so much stuff to put it on everybody else. Chelsea, you have to make me happy. You got to be my other half. What do you mean your other half? What the, what the frick are you talking about? Other half? That assumes that you're only half of you. Where the hell did half of you go? Did you drop you on a bus stop along the way and forget where the hell you put yourself? That's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. And yet we're programmed to go, you need to find your other half. You need to be star-crossed lovers and y'all need to be, you know, this thing. You need the divine feminine and the divine masculine. Well, you're both dumb shit. You're totally. both masculine and feminine. So wake the fuck up and stop acting like it's somebody else that's going to make you happy. But when they don't, you punish them. You beat the piss out of them. I'm going to kick your ass. You are an asshole. I can't believe you get that. You're just like your daddy or... You're just like your mother, all this other shit and go, are you talking to them or you? Why don't you stop for a second and start looking at me? Wait, wait a minute. I drew this person into my life eloquently to learn something about myself because the relationship I'm in, the marriage that I'm in, the journey that I'm on at the risk of sounding self-centered and narcissistic and somewhat we all are. And it's time we own that, not from a check me out, I'm self-made because nobody's self-made, but look at it from the perspective of every person you meet is a beautiful reflection of a mirror to yourself, even if it's for a shade of a moment. And that's love being projected, even when it's anger or shame or guilt or frustration or abandonment, all of those things, and go, damn, thank you for showing that to me so I can see it because I'm so busy inside my head mentally masturbating, I can't see it for myself because I'm used to being with me. So when I see it reflected back to me, I go, huh, do I do that? Is that me? Mm. Well, it yeah. has to be you because as I tell everybody, everybody in the architect system, I go, guys, rule number one, you're the, you know, the world doesn't revolve around you, but you are the center of your world. <laughs> yeah. So as soon as you own that shit, you can start looking around going, huh, I keep drawing on all these people that keep, you know, uh, kicking my ass or these people that keep abandoning me or the people that just want to use me for my sex or, you know, I'll keep that. Well, well, hey, brother, sister, newsflash, you're the center of your world, baby. You're the central axis. Isn't it time you look at yourself and go, shit, I'm doing this to get blank or I expect them to do blank because I have not dealt with me, the relationship that matters most because until I deal with me, I'm really just dealing with shades of me on the outside and then mm -hmm. expecting that those shades to make me whole. And the fact is you were never not whole. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of times in relationships, we attract what we need to heal. Like we attract the wounded parts of ourselves and what we, we think we need to heal those things over. And that's an entire wow. process in itself. We bring it by the dump truck. What are you talking about? We're like, oh, how come every guy I meet is such a knucklehead? 
all they want me for is sex. Well, I'm just curious. You're walking around in six inch stilettos with the shorts that are so, so there that, you know, your coochie's showing out, but you want respect. Mm-hmm. Now think about the dichotomous message or guys, I'm going to walk around with my Lamborghini. I'm going to show my money, my bling, bang, and my bitches and my hoes. Hey, buddy, you're going to want a real, real relationship. Really? I mean, really? Why don't you look at you're so busy trying to impress somebody because deep down inside places you don't want to talk about in cocktail parties and little book meetings, you are scared shitless that someone might find out you're a big ass softy marshmallow and all you really want to do is be in love, but you have forgot that being in love requires you to be in love with you. And I don't mean love like I'm great. I'm the shiznit. Check me out. I'm doing the Macarena. I'm all that. You all want to be like me. That's not love. That's egoism at its finest going, yo, yo, yo. I'm like, relax for a second. What I'm talking about is being in love with everything. Mm-hmm. Now that is a journey of a lifetime. It's not something that comes like a, hey, I went to a weekend seminar, Trav, and I'm in love with everything. God dang it. I'm unconditional. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> you are the most conditional person you've ever met because you're in your head all damn day. Calm yeah. down. Unconditional means I'm willing to look at the conditions by which I impose upon myself, I impose upon others, or I impose upon an experience as a way of validating that I'm not enough yet, as opposed to going, enough for what? Ooh. Ask that question. Yeah. What are you enough for? Mom, dad, religion, state, yourself, the voices in your head, your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you're going to prove them all wrong, you're going to show them, well, yeah, you should have stayed with me because I was the one. Oh, well, that's a great motivation. Venge, mm-hmm. Vengefulness and revenge are awesome drivers, right? Because nobody gives a shit. Relax. You are still working on you. Dive into the pain of you. And there's an irony of this family. You know, I take my word for it. Please take your own journey. But if you're willing to take that journey, jump into your pain. Jump into it. And this is going to sound the strangest thing you'll ever hear. I know you're like, this guy is completely, he should go back to golf. He's done lots of time. There is a beautiful pleasure when you come through the other side of pain, where you go, shit, that pain taught me so much. The pain of me having an autistic son was excruciating. First three years of my son's uh, life, I was pissed mm-hmm. at the world. I was pissed at God. I was pissed at myself because it fucked up my perfect little image of what I thought it was going to be, mm-hmm. right? I thought this, this is it. This is my last chance because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a 17-year uh, card-carrying member of having a vasectomy, I thoroughly recommend it, especially because it just takes that shit out of the equation. But I knew that this was going to be my last child, so I was all in. Man. All my chips were on the table. I was going to bang back. I had it all planned out. This kid was going to be perfect. And he came out autistic, and that pissed me off. I'm like, you just screwed that shit up. You know, God, you're an asshole. Why did you do that? And the truth is, it was such a wicked pain. It had to be that difficult because my ego was so into what I thought it should look like, how it was supposed to be. I was so intelligent because clearly I'm the smartest guy on the planet. Duh, not true. All of a sudden he shows up. I have no idea how to communicate with him. I have no idea how to be that authentic or to be that present. The best lesson I've ever learned, family, I'll share with you was from my autistic son when he was seven years old. I will never forget it. It is burned in my brain for the rest of my life is one of the greatest lessons of being present I've ever, ever experienced. And I remember we were in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was fall. And he, we were out these big pile of leaves. And I was just trying to teach him how to jump in the leaves, something that you know most parents would kind of just take for granted. Well, for him, he took it from a totally different perspective. He didn't want to jump into the leaves and just jump in to jump in. He grabbed each leaf and he stood there. He sat there for a half hour and I watched him intently going, what is this child doing? And he squished these leaves and he just crumpled them. And there's this big, beaming, gorgeous, 
blissful thing coming off of his face of just crushing these leaves and watching it. And he did it for a half hour. I mean, fuck, I was born after three minutes. I was like, okay, you crushed the first 15 leaves. Are we done? Can we do something else? And I stopped myself and said, shut up, Travis. Be present. Watch what he's doing. And what he was doing, he was so present at the texture of those leaves mm. and the crunching of the sound and the smell of them. I started weeping. I started bawling. I was oh. sitting crying and I'm watching like, oh my God, I'm losing my shit. I need to go. I need to go down some drugs. I'm, I'm losing my mind. And I realized I had never, I, to that moment, I had never been so present, never so blissful in something such experiential. I'd never been so tactilely aware of my internal and external environment colliding. And the lesson had to come from an excruciating amount of pain because my mind was so stubborn, so locked on, so convinced of what it should look like as a parent to a child because I knew everything. Clearly I didn't. And yet the greatest lesson came in silence of just watching him crush leaves. And it changed me forever. And I went, holy shit, I have no idea what I'm doing. Perhaps my child is my teacher. Isn't it time I look at what he's actually inviting me to do? He's inviting me to go, Dad, it doesn't have to look like the way you think it does. Just because my brother and sister were normal or typical, quote unquote, doesn't mean I'm not. I just um, approach the world in a different way. And isn't it time you learn that lesson? Because that's what you asked me to do, Dad. What do you want to do? Mm. And change me forever. So it comes that's to that space horrible. of, are we willing to dive into our pain? We're already hurting anyway, so why not just dive into it? Mm. That's so powerful. That's an amazing story. And I think that's an amazing story to wrap up the podcast with as well. It's oh, so you. powerful. <laughs> so we've talked about so many things on this podcast. We talked about belief systems. We talked about ego. We talked about soul. We talked about leaning into pain. We talked about hypnosis. We talked about fears. What is one thing that you'd like to leave people with? Um, potentially something that they could implement into their own life, either a change in perception or an action that they can take. Well, yeah, thank you for that, by the way. And thanks for letting me be on the podcast. And thanks to all your listeners for, for taking the time to listen to a, you know, an old bird kind of chuck. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I would offer two things, if I may, if I may be so bold. Um, I love teaching. That's what I'm really good at. And I use the word teacher now in a very, very humble way because I don't really teach anybody anything, but I reflect a really strong way for them to teach themselves. I think that's super valuable in the authenticity and where we are in today's world. You know, everybody's on a social media trying to give an ism or a thing and trying to create value, value, value. You already are valuable. The fact that you're here is value enough. Start there. And at being redundant, if you're really, really to dive into your pain, going off the, the previous uh, segment there, ask yourself, if I only had 30 days left to live and really put yourself into that pain of awareness because it's scary it will scare the crap out of you when you really dive into that question if i only had 30 days left to live how would i live what would i say who would i talk to who would i spend the last minutes of wringing every drop of life out of this body i could get who would i do that with and take the time to honor yourself to look at that and then start living your life that way and if that question scares you so much that you run from it that's the first place you probably need to go. And then I would invite you to, to if I can do a shameless plug, I bite you into the jump. And the jump is a training we do. It's, it's a 15-day program. It's 15 hours of training that walks you through this. It's right there in, the, in your home. You don't have to do anything. And it's seven bucks. You're worth seven bucks. Knock it off, right? There's, there's no fancy upsell. There's no, but wait, there's more. There's no one-time offer crap. It's seven bucks. Go through the 15 hours. It's me teaching it. You even get a call with one of my graduate architects who is where you were at that moment. Jump into your life fast. I can tell you now, 
you know, uh, at 49, I will tell you point blank, I, I just realized I just showed up. I've been training for 49 years to start my life and I'm on the back nine now, right? I've got my, my back nine to play and, you know, universe and architect willing, I'll, I'll make it another 50, 50 years and we'll get the full, you know, the full 18 holes in. But don't let your life go by that fast and don't think it has to be how you think it should look and invite yourself to jump into your pain. There's pleasure on the other side. And ironically, you're already in pain anyway. So isn't the time you explore pleasure as your primary driver? Mm, thank you so much. That's amazing. Thank so you. jump is a way people can find you. Do you have social media platforms people can find you? And if I could just say one more thing, you have a, a conference. You're one of the founders of the Unify Conference, right? That's coming up in Las Vegas. Gary Vaynerchuk, Tom Bilio, um, he'll be speaking as well on stage. Yep, they are, they are gracious enough to come. It's Unify event. It's March 26th and 27th at the Venetian Theater. Uh, you can get tickets. You can go to unifyusa.com. That's unifyusa.com. I'll be speaking there as well. In fact, I'm opening for Gary. Uh, I am one of the co-founders of that. And that is a true, uh, one of our, our designs of Unify is, and all of the, the companies that uh, uh, it owns and part of, is to really change the educational platforming. So that people can become, you know, educated on how to become a true entrepreneur, moving away from what the entrepreneur model is, what you think it is, but a true entrepreneur so that you can experience a lifestyle. Because what's the point of creating this lifestyle if you miss your life? So Architect is, the, is, is a precursory founder base plate of how we built this culture of how do we actually, you know, discover who I really am without who I'm supposed to be. And then how do I take that? That natural passion that I already am. You don't need to go find your passion. You already are passion. You see, remember that you stuffed it down a long time ago at some you know, party or event and forgot that you were passionate and then you traded it in for time and commonly called a paycheck. And go experience a lifestyle. So you find out who you are, live your life and create a lifestyle. And it's this beautiful sequential sequence of how to do that and unify as an amazing event. It's 1,700 people. And obviously, if you don't know who Gary is, go check him out. I'm pretty sure you do. Tom is amazing. We have uh, headliners, uh, speakers, all people who are in that space. And this is really about how do I educate myself to become a true entrepreneur and walk through it. An entrepreneur, so we're just leaving on this note, it isn't about making a bazillion dollars. It's about falling in love with the journey of following a passion, creating an idea, building into something else, sharing it to other people and allowing it to live your lifestyle and invite them on that lifestyle journey with you. Whatever that outcome may be, doesn't matter if you make a thousand dollars or you make a hundred million. The fact is you are authentic to you. And you help someone else do the exact same thing by inviting them. And that's what Unify is all about. So if you want to check it out, you can go to unifyusa.com. Or if you want to go to the jump, you can just go to travisfox.net. It's right there. You can take the free passion test and find out what your passion is and then jump right in. You're good to go. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Travis. It was awesome Thank having you on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was a good talk. I, re I enjoy our coffee talks. We should do it more often. Next time I'm over in uh, your side of the world, I'll stop by. We'll do another coffee talk. Definitely. This episode of the Chelsea Zerna podcast is sponsored by Wildly Woven. There are very few things in this world that have impacted me more than getting out of my default environment and exploring a new country. That's why Megan Elman, Matt Thomas, and myself are putting together a New Year's retreat in Bali. This is an eight-day event for people looking to dive deeper into their soul and balance their inner masculine and feminine energies. It's open to both men and women, and it'll be eight days of breath work, yoga, meditation, exploring the, the local culture. For more information, head over to wildlywoven.com.